Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13 for the sermon text, or excuse me, for the uh, scripture reading. Romans 13, 1 through 14 is the scripture reading for today. The sermon text will be from 1 Peter 4, but the scripture reading is Romans 13, verses 1 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but, only, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. First Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. For the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 
show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good servants of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray his blessing on its preaching. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We ask now that you would please bless our time. We ask that you would bless the one who speaks. Bless those who hear. All to the glory of you who gave us this word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The end of all things is at hand. Let's think about that apostolic claim for just a second. Peter is writing in the middle of the first century, or thereabouts. But the end did not come in the first century, nor did it come in the second century, or even, as we know, by the 20th century. So what is he talking about? Was the end of all things truly at hand, or wasn't it? Some say that now that the nation of Israel has appeared in the land of Canaan, only now, since 1948 when that happened, only now may we say that the end of all things is truly at hand. Some say that because the European Union has been formed, only now, are the end of all is the end of all things at hand others say that we only have to wait until the missionaries of the church bring the gospel to every last tribe or language group and when the gospel is finally preached to that last pagan man or woman and only as that threshold approaches may we truly conclude that the end is at hand But Peter says, around the middle of the first century, the end of all things was at hand then. So how are we to understand these words? This phrase, at hand, is used throughout the New Testament as its expression of choice to refer to the arrival of the kingdom. It was used by Jesus when he said, Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus actually tells his disciples to use this expression. He tells them that they are to say that the kingdom has come upon them. The same word that Peter is using here about the end of all things being at hand. In the New Testament, then, we can see whether we are talking about the first coming of our Lord or his second coming, the term of choice is at hand. And that is because the coming of the king, the coming of his kingdom, is a single but two-staged affair. The coming of the king and of the kingdom has two aspects. 
That is, it comes in two phases. But in order to understand Peter, we must understand that this two-staged coming of the king and of the kingdom is, in fact, in the biblical view of things, one big event. The long-promised and prophesied coming of the Messiah was understood in Old Testament times to be one big event. This event was sometimes referred to as the Day of the Lord. And this one big prophetic event that the Old Testament looked forward to involved not only the putting away of sin, but also the setting of all things to right again. The Old Testament promised not only a a suffering Messiah, but it also promised a glorious kingly Messiah. The long-expected day of the Lord would involve not only making satisfaction for sin, finally, but it would also involve judgment. But in New Testament times, as it's been revealed to us in the writings of the apostles, we know that the sacrifice for sin, the coming king accomplished at his first coming. But the putting all things to right, the coming king will accomplish at his second coming. Now, we, we Christians are familiar with that concept, of course. But what I must emphasize, before we can understand Peter's claim here, is that the two comings of the Lord are two aspects of the one prophesied coming day of the Lord. The two comings of the Lord are two aspects of the one prophesied coming of the day of the Lord. And so here's the point of all of this. The intervening time between the coming of the Messiah to suffer and the coming of the Messiah to conquer is all of a piece in the scriptures. That is relevant for us because it means that all the time between the two comings of Christ is in the New Testament view of things. All of a piece. That is, it's all one thing even if it's divided into two aspects. The last 2,000 years, then, is all one already-and-not-yet moment in redemptive history. So if someone were to ask you whether you thought we were living in the last days or not, you should not say, yes, because Israel has been reformed again in our day. You should also not say, yes, we are living in the last days because we are now at last on the verge of reaching the last unreached people groups with the gospel, even though we should continue to try to do so. You should instead answer, yes, and we have been living in the last days since the time of the apostles. At 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, the apostle Paul tells us that the end of the age has come upon us. At 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, the Apostle John tells us that it is now the last hour. And these are the last days, says the Apostle Peter at another place in Acts chapter 2. And all of these apostles said these things in the first century. The only Unfulfilled prophecy then since the days of the apostles is the final consummation of this one day of the Lord 
that final aspect of the one comprehensive coming of the king and of the kingdom. Now looking at a calendar, we might think that the two comings of the king and of the kingdom, because of all the centuries in between, are vastly different things. But looking at this the way the apostles do, looking at the two comings and all that happens in between them, in terms of their place in history, the history of God's redemption, this in-between time, between the first and second coming, is really seen as one thing. Now here's an illustration. It's kind of a bad illustration, but it might help. If you go into a, take a shower, for that first moment, what gets wet is your head. And once your head has gotten wet, immediately thereafter, the rest of your body gets wet too, and then ultimately your feet. But you're no more taking a shower once your feet have gotten wet than you were taking a shower when only your head had gotten wet. You're just more wet after the passing of a little time. But the whole process is, in fact, from start to finish, one thing. So... You're understood to be taking a shower no matter where you are in the process. And by the same token, the apostles were no less than we are. They were also in the last day, the last hour, with the end of all things truly at hand. Like with a shower, we are with the last days dealing with a single unit, a unified whole that is not so much divided into parts, so much it is simply more of the same the longer the process goes on. So the end was at hand then in Peter's day. And the end is at hand now. It was the last hour in the Apostle John's day. And it is the last hour now. Because we and the Apostles are all sandwiched together between these two aspects of the one promised and prophesied day of the Lord. Let's move on in today's text. Let's look at verse 7. Therefore, certain things follow from the fact that the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand, says the Apostle Peter. Therefore, Watch CNN every night to look for this or that late-breaking event respecting the state of Israel or the EU or the UN. Because then you'll know for sure whether the end of all things is at hand, whether we are living in the last days or not. Therefore, writes Peter, buy a pile of books from someone's so-called prophetic ministry. To discover where the lost week of Daniel fits into today's headlines. Then trade your dollars in for gold and start buying ammo. Now taking prudential measures such as acquiring firearms, ammo, silver in these last days is always appropriate. As it is always appropriate to take care for and to provide for our physical safety and our physical needs during these last days between the two comings of the Lord. 
But that is not the burden of the apostle in this particular passage. Someone once asked the German reformer Martin Luther what he would do if he knew that the Lord would return the very next day. Before I tell you how Luther responded, think of how you would respond to that question. Think about it. What would you do if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow? What would you do differently? Martin Luther said that he would plant a tree and pay his taxes. Now, but that's not like anything that popped into anyone's mind among us today. What would you do if Jesus Christ was returning tomorrow? Let's turn back to Romans 13 together, to the scripture reading from today. Romans 13, this time we'll look just at verses 7 through 14. Romans 13, 7 through 14. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, etc. Now Paul uses a word in verse 11. In the ESV, translated as nearer. And that word has the very same root as Peter's word at hand. But Paul modifies the word to make it mean more at hand. And in verse 12, Paul uses the very same perfect tense verb that Peter used when he writes that the day is at hand. The end being at hand is nothing new, Paul says. It's just more at hand now than when Christ came the first time. And that's like what we were talking about earlier. The two comings and the time in between the two comings of Christ is one unit. It's one event. No matter where you are in the process. Just like a shower. So the apostles were in the same posture as we are. The same posture of constant expectation. The apostles were in the same position of messianic anticipation. The apostles were more or less in the same redemptive historical situation as we are. We are just more so now. So why did I take you again to Romans 13? First, it was to illustrate that point. Second, 
It was to show you that Luther was right. I took you here to see what is the unified message of the apostles to the churches in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand. How is the church to respond to the fact that the end of all things is at hand? According to the apostles, the day is at hand, so pay your taxes. Pay them to whom taxes are due. And honor your public officials now. In our case, in America, to your duly and lawfully and legitimately elected public officials. But the gist of Peter's message is the end is nigh. So love one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the end is at hand, so love each other. Don't quarrel with one another or be jealous. The end of all things is upon you, Christians, the apostles say. So fight your flesh and obey God's commandments. Both apostles, as we've seen today, are concerned to tell us that the end of all things is at hand. In the very same places in their writings where we find simple commands to obedience and plain exhortations to love. That's what we see here in Romans 13. And that's what we see when we move back to our sermon text. Those are the imperatives that follow, that flow from the indicative, from the fact that the end is near. That's how we, who are saved by grace through faith, are to respond to the fact that the end of all things is at hand. If you haven't already, turn back again to our passage, to 1 Peter 4. Look again at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be sober and prudent. Be in prayer. That is the saying, that is the apostolic response to the arrival of the last days. Let the fact of his impending return focus and settle your minds on activities like prayer. Not result in activities like watching more cable news or trying to de decipher the identity of Gog and Magog. But let the reality that he is at the very door shape your behavior in these other ways. Look at verse 8. Above all, above all, love the church. Above all, love your brethren. Above all, let those words sink in. Above all, earnestly. How many times do the apostles, in his name, command this mutual love of us? And here we are told that this love for the brethren must be above all. Above and beyond everything else. Love the brethren. So in a word, and please take this away with you. If you're not loving the brethren in a local church, you're not prepared for his return. You're like one of the foolish virgins who was unprepared for the groom's return. If, 
above all other considerations, you are not loving the brethren in your church. Let's look at the rest of verse 8. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Now what does this mean? Does this mean that if we do love the brethren, we atone for or cover our own sins before God? In short, no. Only Christ's one-time perfect offering for sin can atone for sin, can cover it from God's sight. So no, we don't love our brethren so that our love will cover our sins from God's sight. In love, we forgive our brother his trespasses. And so we cover over his failings and trespasses from our sight. If we love our brother in love, we will cover over a multitude of his sins. The context here is mutual love among the brethren. So in love, we forgive and we forget. You see, the apostles know, the apostles are familiar with the fact that a sinner loves to leave his brother's trespasses, especially his trespasses against him, to rest upon his pallet for a while, sometimes a very long while. The faults, sins, and trespasses of others can be sweet, to a sinner's taste. We tend to savor it as long as possible, turning the offense over and over in our mind, again and again. Being sinful, we all suffer from this tendency to one degree or another. But be warned. That is the contrary of this commanded forgiveness, this covering over of our brother's sins. That is not loving the brethren. Out of your love for your brother, you must cover over his sins from your sight. Just as from love, God covered over your sins from his. Let's move on. What else follows from the fact that the end of all things is at hand? Let's look at verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Again, ordinary, very unspectacular Christian godliness and right conduct before the Lord is what follows from the fact that the end is near. Show hospitality to the brethren with a cheerful attitude. But let's observe something else of significance here. Peter begins to discuss spiritual gifts here. Let's look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Every member of Christ's body has a gift from the Lord. The important thing for you to know at this point is the reason you've been given a gift. The scripture says to his body that we are to use his gifts for the benefit of his body. The church, as a body, has received manifold gifts from God for the service and upbuilding of itself. The eye does not see for itself or its own advantage, but for the service of the entire body. And it can only see while it is in union with the rest of the body. 
The hand does not manipulate things for its own sake, but for the good of the whole body. And again, the hand can only perform its function if it's united to the rest of the body. These gifts Peter is referring to in verse 10 are what our book of church order would refer to as gifts associated with the general office of every believer. Everyone in the body has a gift given by the Lord to serve Jesus' body in this world. With the giving of the gift of the Lord, the Lord has made each of us in the church a kind of trustee. You've been entrusted with something, and you're obligated to use that something, again, for the benefit of his bride, of his church, all in the service of him who gave that gift. But you are also under another obligation for having received this gift. You are under the obligation to improve your gift. You may not tuck it away and keep it safe. Remember here the parable of the talents. One servant was left with five talents of precious metal, another two talents, and another but one talent. Now maybe you look around and see gifted people in the church, And then you look at what you think is your relatively small gift, and you just resign yourself to watch others use theirs. That is a sin. Every gift, great or small, has been given to each member of the church to build and to serve the church. We will all, brothers and sisters, have to give an account. And that accounting, we are told, is at hand. That is why Peter says in verse 10 that you are all stewards of your gifts. You must sharpen it. You must strengthen it through its continual exercise for his profit, that is, for the profit of his body. Now let's look at the final verse of today's text. Verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory, belong glory, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter now begins to discuss the gifts involved with the special offices in the church. That of minister, elder, and deacon which he here divides into two, word gifts and service gifts. A minister, that is one who speaks, is enjoined here, is commanded to be faithful to the text of the scriptures, which are the oracles of God. But this charge to ministers is relevant to the rest of the body too. If a a minister is faithful to the text of God's word, then his speaking The apostle says, is as God's speaking. God's people then may not reject or ignore preaching that is faithful to the text of Scripture. If the one gifted and called to act as God's own mouth to God's own people opens up the Scriptures faithfully in a local church, in either preaching or teaching, then God's people are under an obligation to be there at that local church or to hear it. 
uh, remotely as we've made provisions for, but in any event to hear it and to submit to it in the Lord. They are, after all, we are told in Scripture, his oracles, if delivered faithfully. So this would naturally hold for a minister's Sunday school lessons, evening service devotionals, and Bible studies, as much as his sermons. When the oracles of God are opened for his people, they are obligated to be there, to take heed, to take it to heart. The only ground which excuses God's people of this duty is demonstrable heterodoxy. And the only proper response to that is to take it in the form of a charge to his presbytery. Now finally, let's consider something very noteworthy in this last verse. What is the divine purpose behind granting all of these gifts to the church? It says, in order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Did you notice that? Take a look again. We have been given gifts so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You would think that it would say, we have been given gifts so that God may be glorified through us. But that's not what it says. We've been given gifts in order that the Father might be glorified through the Son. Now we should understand that this is so in two respects. It is only because of the mediation of Jesus Christ on our behalf that our worship or our service is accepted by God. Nothing a person does since the fall of man can bring glory or pleasure to God if that person does not approach God through Jesus Christ. The scripture says there is one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. So the mediatory office and work of Jesus Christ is the only way whereby our use of his gifts can glorify the Father. But there is also nestled in this language that we are looking at, the idea of our union with Christ. If we trust in Christ Jesus alone for our salvation, then we are said in the Bible to be in Christ. Those who are in Christ by faith are called his own body. In Scripture, the church is called Christ's body, and he is called the head of the church. So that is how we are to understand how these gifts for service given to us bring glory from Christ to the Father. As the body of Christ uses its gifts, the Father is glorified in our head. For the body and its head are one. And it is to him that belongs the dominion and the glory both now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We ask you to please sow it into our hearts. Let it not just rest upon our minds for a while, but let it work itself out in our actions, our thoughts, words, and deeds. 
and let all the glory be yours through Jesus Christ alone, our head and king over this church, which is his body in this world. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.